to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, a stuff my mom did tell me when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Don't nag. Oh. Do not nag me. Oh, yeah. Would you nag your mother? There were probably times when I did repeatedly ask her for the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, though, whether her suggesting, requesting Mm -hmm. that I not nag her was more a product of her being a stressed out mother of five and also working or if I really was a little nag running around. Yeah, I don't. I this is going to be another one of those episodes where there's a lot of real talk. And a lot of like looking, looking deep inside, Kristen. Uh, I mean, I don't mean looking deep inside Kristen. I mean looking deep inside myself, comma Kristen. You can look inside of me too, <laughs> and and talk about all of our complaining, um, because really sometimes there's nothing better than a really good wine. Yeah, but are those three distinct things: nagging, complaining, and whining? Nagging is, they're all related, obviously. Uh, it's not a stretch to imagine how those things are related. Um, complaining and nagging are a little bit different. There's, there's a little Venn diagram where nagging and complaining are on separate circles and they, they overlap in the middle. Um, whining, I think, is also, it would be like a three-way Venn diagram. Let's get, let's get real interesting. So whining would also be in there, but that's more of like a, Maybe you don't want your problem solved. You're literally just whining. Maybe you're me and you haven't had anything to eat yet. And you start to get like a little bit whiny and sound like a four-year-old. Or maybe you're comedian Matt Belasi who drinks wine and then whines about it and makes hilarious videos out of it. Yes. No, my friend did recently have a get-together referred to as wine and whining. That was basically meant for us to all just get together and complain. And did it feel good? Um, (laughs) well, I think we didn't stick to the whining part of it. I think we just chit chatted. Whining was certainly a part of it because I don't think you can separate complaining out of any conversation. (laughs) You've got to really try hard. There are so many people out there on the internet right now who are writing columns and blogs about how they've tried to give up complaining for a week or a month or a year and, and what it does to them. And it's so funny to see the difference between the people who are so earnest about it, who are like, I need to change my life. I need to get right and live right and stop complaining and be grateful versus the people who are like, not complaining is the worst. Complain, complain, complain. Uh, because I feel like I would be in that second camp of people that not complaining is the worst. Yeah. And, and not that I, not that I don't agree that we need all collectively to, Maybe complain less, be grateful more, but there's so many different facets to complaining and what it means for you and your friends versus maybe your boss versus maybe your mom and your coworkers. Like there's all sorts of different language and bonding connections that can be made around complaining. And so one of those columns we were reading by one of those women who bravely tried to go without complaining, she ended up pointing out that, like, listen, it's a noble cause to try to stop complaining about every single thing, every minute of the day, like, let it go, lighten up. But there is something to be said 
for being able to bond over a shared like, man, that movie was terrible or Ugh, that food was gross. That stuff I've never told you. Podcast stinks. There's so <laughs> much of vocal fry. Ugh, vocal fry. Yeah, I'm personally seeking more of a complaint balance yeah. in my life because on the one hand, I know that I am probably not a very productive complainer because if there's something really, really upsetting me, once I get going, I have to tell you every single detail of it. Yeah. And that's probably too much. But then on the other hand, if I'm not telling you anything that's wrong in my life, that probably means I'm shutting down emotionally and bottling things up. Yeah. And finding a happy medium is actually kind of challenging for me. So this research personally was very illuminating and gave me lots of food for thought mm-hmm. slash complaining. <laughs> because the thing about it, the, we, the first complaint we can have about complaining <laughs> is that we develop it in a way from our parents, the, that yeah. parent-child communication, me talking to my mom and her telling me not to be a nag. It's all rooted back there, not surprisingly. Yeah, so it's a learned behavior. Basically, we would use it to wear our parents down to get what we wanted. And it's often the only way that kids can communicate when they're uncomfortable. If they're very, very, very young, very little kids, uh, and they don't have great communication skills, they might only know how to tell you that they're uncomfortable, hungry, tired, cold, scared by whining. And this is especially true if maybe they've tried to communicate with you quietly or sweetly or whatever previously, but you don't set down the whatever project you're doing or whatever and look at them until they start to throw a fit and whine. An evolutionary psychologist would tell you that we do this because it's an evolved instinct to raise a stink, essentially, about potential serious threats. So now I like to imagine that a, uh, like a cave woman mom is pushing a grocery cart through the aisle and she's got her cave baby and the cave baby's like, mom, the saber toothed tiger, watch out. And she's like, oh my God, we've got to watch out of the saber toothed tiger. See? So like it has a great evolutionary benefit. Yeah. As I just proved for avoiding saber toothed tiger attacks in prehistoric grocery stores. Right. Exactly. No, I'm glad you understand. Um, well, so if we look at the types of adult human people complainers that we deal with today, it is interesting to see who complains and how much and why, because there are different whys of complaining. So on average, these human people I'm referring to complain to each other about once a minute, which sort of blew my mind. And then I just, you know, thought about any thought process or conversation I ever have. And then it made sense. And I was like, yeah, I again, again, I'm just proven research all over the place. And when it comes to personalities, uh, no surprise, people high on the agreeableness scale are less likely to complain because they're so gosh darn agreeable. But this relationship surprised me. People with high self-esteem. Oh, yeah, they're complainers. But they're probably complaining differently than just your average whiner. 
Yeah. So these people complain with a goal. And this is what's referred to as instrumental complaints. And these people with high self-esteem are more confident that their grievances are actually legit and that speaking up will turn the tide in their favor. So these are people who will say, instead of just suffering with a terrible hotel room or a bad dining experience, they will speak up. They're not going to whine about it. They're going to have the facts and the logic and the knowledge in their brain of what to say and who to say it Two, not just opening their mouths and flapping their lips about how terrible an experience was. They go into a situation with the confidence that I am going to address this. And there's even a relationship between that more instrumental complaining and happiness as psychology professor Robin Kowalski has researched because she's looked a lot into mindfulness and this idea of really focusing on the present and its connection to happiness, because obviously if you're more focused on the present than all the what ifs surrounding you, you're probably going to be a little bit happier. And her research has found that those mindful people act with more intention and complain with more intention. They're only complaining when it's serving a purpose. And that leads to happier outcomes. Yeah, exactly. And so those are just a couple of goals of complaining. And there are so many more, though. I talked about the the facets of a complaint, and there are so many. And, you know, maybe some of these apply to you today. Maybe some of them apply to you tomorrow. You can have many different reasons for complaining. Um, but basically, there are two main types. You're either complaining about yourself or somebody else, right? So when you complain about yourself, that's called a reflexive complaint. Maybe you're complaining about how, oh, I really screwed up that test or God, I'm so cold. This is awful. Um, when you're complaining about someone else, that is called an ostensive complaint. And the fancy term for venting, which would usually probably go under ostensive complaints, would be referred to as an expressive complaint because we have these things called intrapsychic goals. And that is the goal of venting or these expressive complaints because we're looking to make ourselves feel better mentally rather than changing something. We just need to get it off our minds. And venting, that, that's my problem, my, yeah. vent, my venti problem, which makes me think that I'm at Starbucks right. and I need to tell you every single thing because I just need to get it out of me. Exactly. And and again, and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit later, but venting is good. You, you need to vent. You need to blow off steam. It becomes bad when it crosses a line into like, okay, well, maybe you're fixated and you're obsessing about things that you obviously can't change. And so, but don't worry, I don't want to spoil anything yet. Let's talk some more about what's called blasting. So this falls under venting. Uh, Kristen mentioned intrapsychic goals, which is basically the goal of venting to make yourself feel better. But there's also interpersonal goals of venting, which is called blasting. And that's when you complain in order to distance yourself from someone else, to demonstrate superiority, or potentially distract from your own poor performance. So complaining about, oh, he's such a bad driver, or she's so messy, you're then kind of putting yourself up a little little bit higher than someone by complaining about them. And then you have complaining in order to convince others of your importance. And this is distinct from blasting, which is just to demonstrate your superiority, because this belongs more under the old humble bragging umbrella that we devoted an entire episode to. It's the whole thing of like, oh, I'm so busy. I work so hard. I've got so many important things to do. And it just stresses me out so much. Do you know how hard it is to be this beautiful? <laughs> and that's all about impression management because you want to you want to complain. You don't want to say outright, 
I'm gorgeous. Love me. Instead, you'll say, oh, it's just, you know how hard it is to be beautiful because no one can relate to you. Right. And the example that an Atlantic article that we read gave for impression management was, you know, going to a fancy restaurant and complaining that uh, they don't have the perfect wine, the, the wine that you just love, because it's it's giving an impression to your fellow diners that like. My standards are just so incredibly high, you wouldn't even believe it in this restaurant. Well, it's it's fine. I mean, I know it's $300 a plate. It's it's just okay. Talk about whining about it. Uh. But then, let's say you're at that fancy restaurant with hopefully not this insufferable person who is really proud of his or her wine knowledge. And you need to break the ice. Maybe you're on a first date or maybe things are awkward. Complaining via small talk is a reliable way to bond. Yeah, it's like it's a really quick and reliable way to develop rapport. If I come up to you at a party and it's like, oh, hey, it's really it's fall. It's gorgeous outside. You're like, yeah, it's it's really nice. But if I come up to you, it's almost like developing a quick unit. Complaining helps you be like, oh, I know I hate when that so and so person talks or, oh, I know traffic around here is terrible. Let me tell you about what happened to me. We really seem to get off like as humans on complaining to each other about stuff around us. And it really ties into the other another facet of why we complain, which is to feel more validated, more supported and less alone. Uh, one example that we read was parents at a play group complaining about their wild toddlers because not only are they getting to bond through this complaining, uh, but they get to feel less guilty about sort of being annoyed with their own children because everybody else is complaining about it, too. And the whole thing about feeling less alone, I mean, the whiner, whoever's doing the complaining, might simply feel powerless over something, whether it is uh, the, the toddler who's out of control or whether it's something else in their life. They might just not know how to soothe themselves or take control of the situation. And so by complaining to others, you're sort of seeking acknowledgement like I'm having a problem. I need you to acknowledge me and validate me and tell me that I'm not crazy and then I'll feel better. Well, and in some regards, too, you might not really know how to interact with this particular person or group of people, because there's also the aspect of ritualistic complaining, which I think is a common thing, especially among coworkers. Yeah. You go for your happy hour drinks and what are you going to do? You're going to say all of the horrible, terrible, no good things about all of your bosses, which Caroline, for the record, have just never, ever, ever done. And th- there are so many stories of this kind of ritualistic complaining, even within couples. Yeah, of of it just being a thing where you go home at night, you pour your glass of wine, you complain for however long, and that's that's fine to a degree, but there needs to be boundaries. I had a coworker at my last job who I love her. I love her. And she'll be the first to admit that she's a negative Nancy and complains all the time. And the job that she was in at that company was really, really wearing her down to the point where she probably should have quit years before. Um, cause she found literally zero positive stuff in it. Um, and so she would talk about how she would go home every night and her relationship with her husband was becoming toxic because she would just go home and literally couldn't talk about anything else other than how miserable she was. So finally her husband, uh, set up a time limit. He's like, you literally have 
30 minutes or one glass of wine, whichever comes first, to complain about your day, like let loose, call people names, yell, do whatever you want. But like at the end of that 30 minutes, we're changing the subject. We will talk about our families or the weather or like what what I did today, maybe. Uh, but, you know, like you can't spiral out of control. And the thing is that that could sound patronizing in the wrong context. But my friend greatly appreciated because she's like, it's it's just taking over my life. Oh, yeah. I mean, that kind of accountability and boundary setting is a super healthy sign for a relationship. Yeah. So what about the benefits of complaining? Because (laughs) counterintuitive science time, Mm -hmm. it can be helpful. Yeah. Well, you know, anybody who's ever called Comcast and complained and threatened to cancel their service, you know what I'm talking about when you end up getting either like a reduced cable bill or something for free. Um, I've complained on Yelp before about a restaurant here in Atlanta, which was such a terrible experience. And it wasn't necessarily the restaurant's fault, dot, dot, dot. But we had a terrible waiter and there were all these other like weird circumstances that made it a terrible experience. And I went on Yelp and I complained and the manager actually wrote back and said, like, oh, I'm so sorry about this stuff. Like, everything's been taken care of. I would love to have you come back in on my dime. Of course, I've never gone back because no thanks. But when you do it, like we talked about earlier, when you do productively complain for a purpose with a goal in mind, you're more likely to have a positive outcome than if you're just running your mouth, basically. Yeah, I mean, in in all of the benefits that we just discussing the various types of complaining make a lot of sense for how they could be healthy as well, such as relieving stress, forging connections with other people. We don't feel so alone and despondent and might garner you sympathy. All these kinds of uh, just like very basic human needs Mm -hmm. that complaining can fulfill. Yeah, exactly. And if it's constructive, it can be a way of communicating your pain rather than holding it in and stewing, which... That's not good either. That's what Kristen was talking about earlier. Once you're stewing about something and you're not talking about it, it's just going to make things harder to overcome. You're going to feel more stressed, more resentful, whatever. And so psychology professor Barbara Held was talking to WebMD and she was talking about how you can find the right balance. She recommended that you be direct about what's bothering you if your complaint is actually about something solvable. So if your friend is doing something that's bothering you, if you're if you are having a bad dining experience, be direct. Don't try to pussyfoot around and beat around the bush. Um, she also said to be upfront about your need to complain. So if you really are calling a friend to get a drink and it literally is because you have to blow off steam or you're going to explode. She says, just be upfront rather than trying to pretend you're just having a regular conversation. Limit your complaining time and don't act as though your gripes trump everyone else's. Above all, she says, select an appropriate listener. So if you are just venting, find that friend who's cool with letting you vent. If you are like having a terrible experience at a restaurant, find the manager. Don't just like complain to another customer or whatever. And she said that the most effective complaints, once you found that appropriate person to direct your complaint to, they use facts and logic and they have a clear goal of what they want the outcome to be. So basically, when you start complaining, you need to know what you want to get out of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Whether it's like, be on time, don't flake on me, give me more money. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yes, give me more money. I'm complaining about that to all sorts of people. No wonder it hasn't worked out yet. Well, and sometimes the whole complaint could just be, listen to me. Yeah. Listen to me complain. Yeah. You never do that. Um, but of course, sometimes complaining, especially if it's not this more productive and focused kind of complaining, 
can totally backfire and destroy your chances of affecting any change, whether it is change in your own comfort level or change of the things that are bothering you to begin with. And this is something that frequent complainers should watch out for, because a lot of times if you are known as a negative Nancy, you're viewed negatively. You're thought of as grumpy, argumentative or just boring, because, yeah, if you are only complaining about things, that gets very boring. That's very predictable. Oh, let me guess. You're not going to like it. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Oh, Kristen drops real talk. Uh, Yeah. And the whole thing is that chronic complainers get stuck in victim mode, which should be no surprise to anyone who ever hangs out with a chronic complainer. This is irritating. It spreads negativity. You're bugging the universe, as dude roommate would say. And these whiners are chronic complainers because they get trapped in this cycle, right? They feel hurt or rejected or mad, and then they complain about it. And then they get rejected for their irritating behavior and they feel hurt and mad about getting rejected. And then it just spirals on and on and on. But the thing is, these chronic complainers might not even realize what they're doing. They might just be struggling with obsessive thoughts. They're so in their own heads and can't break out of it. So they just might not even hear themselves. And this is especially irritating if you're a If you're friends with a chronic complainer, because a lot of times these people don't take advice. And the thing is, there's an actual psychiatry term for this. They're called help rejecting complainers. I remember when I worked at the newspaper, uh, a coworker of mine was just sort of helpless in love. Like he could not find a date to save his life or he could find a date and then he would muck it up by doing something silly or they just didn't have chemistry. I mean, then there was nothing wrong, like whatever. Um, and so he would complain and complain endlessly. Bless his heart. He's happily married now. Um, and I would give him advice like, hey, have you thought about this? Try this. What about this? And the thing is, he didn't want to hear it. And so I finally like had that crystal clear clarity moment of like, oh, he just wants to complain. I'm not interested in this anymore because that becomes incredibly boring and energy zapping to the people around you. If you literally are just complaining to hear yourself complain and you're not interested in fixing the situation at all. Well, in one way that you might not, you might think you're interested in fixing the situation, but you're handicapping yourself from doing that is relying on humor too much to complain and I have been guilty of this, just being like, well, well, if I deliver it with a laugh and a wink, then it'll be fine. But research has found that humorous complaining can, yeah, I mean, like it engenders sympathy and like people laughing and people enjoying your your clever tweets. But it backfires because people are laughing. Yeah, they're not really taking you seriously. Yeah, because I mean, it makes your complaint seem almost positive, And that leads to the fact that you're less likely to be taken seriously. People are going to know that you had a negative experience, but it'll come off like you don't need your problem addressed. And one of the uh, in the paper we read about this, the example was this musician who'd had his guitar busted on a United Airlines flight, and he made a humorous video about it on YouTube to complain And the thing is, it just it was shared a million times. United was fully aware of the problem that they had broken his guitar. But because he presented it in a way of like, ha ha, I'm going to poke snarky fun at you and and make this video. People were like, oh, well, clearly he's not too upset about it when really it's a great coping mechanism. And people are more likely to approve of that type of complaining. But it's still just complaining. So what about nagging, though? Because like you said earlier in the podcast, The Venn diagram overlaps, but there are distinct hallmarks of nagging. And this especially is one that will 
almost inevitably backfire. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Come to my parents' house. Jeez. Uh, so nagging is the chronic, ostensive complaint. You're trying to get someone to do something, but they're obviously not complying. Or your nag does work in the short term. It does finally, you browbeat someone into finally washing the dishes. But it's not a long-term solution because by definition, a nag is something that, you know, goes on forever and ever. And I, what, what I thought was so interesting about nagging, though, and this is so true if you think about it, we nag the people we're closest to. So just think about that the next time your mom tells you to clean up after yourself. And there's typically a good motivation. You're trying to help a person avoid disaster. In your mind, you're trying to help a person avoid disaster. You're trying to be nurturing or be helpful. Uh, if it's you and your partner, maybe you're trying to get them back on some safe, happy, common ground of like, You're thinking, oh, well, when we first started living together, he did the dishes all the time. And now I can barely get him to pick up his shoes off the floor. So it's just like, I just want us to be happy again. Please do this thing. Um, Or maybe if you're a parent, you're just trying to get your kids to be their best. But the downside of all that, no matter how good your intentions are, is that everyone hates nagging. This should come as no surprise. The person who is nagged ends up feeling Guilty because chances are they know they should be doing it. Uh, chances are my father knows he should be putting away all of the mail off the counter and just doesn't do it. They end up feeling judged, out of control. So like, it's, oh, I already know I need to put away all the mail, but I just, uh, I feel like it's too much to do. And they end up feeling unappreciated, like they're not trusted or good enough or smart enough to actually do something on their own. Well, then the person doing the nagging just feels resentful and unheard. So it's, lose-lose for everybody. And if we look at it on a more biological level, nagging impacts the people around us negatively as well because it sets off fight-or-flight responses, which then tends to result in a demand-withdraw pattern within the relationship. Yeah, so like if you imagine, if you go back to the cave mom and the cave baby and the cave grocery store, so if you imagine though that the mom, the cave mom is nagging at the cave baby, um that is going to set off the fight or flight response because they're like nagging about how we've got to get away from the saber-toothed tiger, and so it's a good idea for that fight or flight to kick in. But if you're just like a couple, sitting around on a Tuesday night and you start in about the dishes, if your partner's fight or flight kicks in, that's really not healthy because then your partner obviously doesn't want to physically fight you because you are not a saber-toothed tiger. So that a lot of times can then spark the demand and withdraw. Your partner will choose to withdraw instead of engaging. And there are all sorts of negative mental and emotional effects that this will have in addition to the ones That we've already outlined because, for instance, excessive complaining is linked with depression and anxiety. Uh, One Stanford study found that just a half hour of complaining a day does not keep the doctor away like an apple, which also doesn't (laughs) keep the doctor away. (laughs) But just a half hour of complaining will release stress hormones that harm our neural connections in the brain's problem solving areas. And I, for one, can attest to the feeling of those stress hormones being released. I mean, you can physically feel what happens if you are complaining to a toxic extent. Yeah, exactly. And and I, you know, just here's Caroline going proven research again. But, you know, do you ever feel like you're in the thick of a complaint and you literally are so wrapped up in it 
that you can't see a way out of the problem. And the person you're talking to might be like, 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 uh, with my coworker who was complaining about his dating woes. And I was like, well, it's obvious that you could just try this, this or this. It doesn't seem that complicated, but he's so wrapped up in it that he lost sight of there even being a problem solving opportunity. Well, and wouldn't that fuel this whole cycle of helplessness where you wallow, you feel powerless, nothing will help you. And so, I mean, it only disengages you further from a solution. And then when you're inevitably disappointed yet again, it starts anew. Yeah. And as my therapist frequently says, energy flows where attention goes. And so Will Bowen, who's an author of The Complaint Free World, says that when we complain, we are using our words to focus on things that are not as we would like. Our thoughts create our lives and our words indicate what we're thinking. It's vital that we control our minds in order to recreate our lives. So changing your focus. If you're focusing literally on nothing but the negative, it's just going to get you back in that cycle of helplessness, that wallowing. Well, one focus of this nagging issue, especially in that word nagging, is gender. So it should come as no surprise to you, honestly, if you if you think about it, when I say that men and women complain equally. Like, that's not surprising. Wait, but women are nags, Caroline. It's (laughs) the nagging wife, right? I know, right? That is the stereotype. And so Kristen and I wanted to look into why, if men and women statistically complain just as much as each other, why do we have this image of women being the complainers and men being like the stoic silent type? Well, it turns out, according to research... That, yes, of course, we all complain about the same amount, but we complain slightly differently. And then, of course, as we'll get into, the way that we perceive each other's complaints colors the whole situation. So there was a 2006 study in women and language that found women were more likely than men to use complaints as an indirect request for action. So, like... Man, I sure wish the sink were clear or, God, this floor really is a mess. Passive aggression, in other words. Yeah. While men in this study were more likely to use complaints to excuse behavior or to make themselves seem superior. So complaining about a situation, well, oh, if he's complaining about it, then it's clear that he would take action to fix it or whatever. Or that superiority distancing yourself motivation that we talked about at the top of the podcast. But the thing is, our complaining can even depend on the audience and whether we want to maintain our image and reputation. So this is coming out of a study from 2014 in the Journal of Consumer Research, which surveyed men and women about a hypothetical, terrible restaurant experience. It was Caroline (laughs) at that awful Atlanta restaurant that she later yelped. Um, And the researchers then asked them what they would do if they ran into an acquaintance and a really good friend after having this horrible dining experience. And there were some gender differences. So women who cared more about looking good in the other person's eyes were less likely to complain to the acquaintance, not surprisingly, but they still told their BFF all about it. Meanwhile, for dudes, didn't matter the relationship, whether it was an acquaintance or a best friend. If they cared a lot about their reputation or image, they were just going to keep quiet to both parties. But if not, they complain to both people. So researchers say that men's communication goals tend to revolve more around reputation, achievement and self because, hey, they don't want to look bad or like they made a bad decision. Hey, you should have known not to have gone to that horrible restaurant. 
whereas women's complaint motivations revolve more around care and protecting others. So it's like to your best friend being like, hey, you can't go down to that all you can eat buffet because (laughs) they run out of pizza too quick. Don't go. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, you know, there are issues that we could bring up of like, oh, is this just falling along those weird stereotypical lines of woman as nurturer and man as stoic, like hunter gatherer or whatever? And yes, I'm sure if we had the time, we could go more deeply into that. But for these particular researchers, they did find those correlations. Uh, And we do tend to complain about different things, at least according to a Staples Advantage survey. How about that? Yes, I am talking about Staples, the office supply store. Yeah. So in this very specific example from the Staples Advantage survey, they found that at work, women are more likely than men are to complain about working extra hours and feeling burned out. They found that men were more likely to basically put up and shut up and just deal with it. And in another incredibly specific uh, study coming out of the Journal of Gerontological Social Work, they looked at nursing homes and what people were complaining about in nursing homes. They found that male residents actually lodged more complaints than women, which made me think back to our earlier conversation and like, oh, are they more confident? Why are they complaining more than women? Maybe they're just crankier about the pudding running low. Well, if the pudding is technical pudding, then yeah, they found that male residents complain more about technical, impersonal and legal issues going on at the nursing home. Whereas female residents were complaining more about personal care and socio-emotional environmental issues like quality of life. Oh, this still sounds like it. Breaks right down yeah. on gender stereotypes. Exactly. Ladies always be so emotional. About that pudding. Caring about that pudding so much. Uh, but here's the thing. We also clearly tend to perceive complaining, both ours and other people's complaining, differently. Yeah, exactly. And I was wondering if that was the reasoning behind why we say that women are the ones who nag versus men. And yeah, kind of. In all of the reading we did, it seemed like it's all in the perception of who's talking and how we think about their language or their complaint or their request, sort of like it's all in the ear of the beholder. So what is nagging, right? We've talked about nagging. It's making multiple requests for an action, and it can come from a place of asking for something indirectly, which is more of a hallmark of stereotypical women's communication But the whole thing is that this indirect communication can also lead to the assumption that it's not urgent. If I'm just like, man, I'd love it. Like, you know, if the floor were swept, I'm totally not using an example from a conversation my boyfriend and I had last night. There's just going to be this assumption that it doesn't need to be taken care of right away, which then might lead hypothetical Caroline to feel ignored and unheard. That's only going to trigger me complaining about it more. And then I'm going to end up being perceived as the nagging woman. But this is still just blaming the nagging woman for how she communicates. The onus is still on you. Right. It's not focused on in this situation when you're just calling someone a nag. um, There's no focus on actually fixing the situation or the communication on either person's parts. And this is something that Susan Krauss Whitborn wrote about in Psychology Today. She said that we frame Women's indirect requests differently than we do when it comes to men. 
Uh, she says, by using the derogatory term nag, a man trivializes the woman's request and at the same time puts her in her place. In other words, it's a double-edged power play. It saves the man actually having to do anything in response to her request until he's good and ready, if at all. By resisting her efforts to mold him to her will, the man can look as if he's in control when he agrees to the request. Which, everybody in this situation just sounds like the worst. I hate it. I don't want to be in it. Yeah, and and I think uh, it's also worth remembering, as we often have to do with so many of these relationship psychology topics, is that this is working within a very heteronormative framework and that, obviously, nagging patterns can take place within any relationship. Oh, yeah. And it's helpful to remember that, I, I think, across the board, regardless of the gender of the person you're talking about, Nagging is a trivializing or marginalizing kind of term. Now, sometimes, yes, I mean, the the nagging pattern is unproductive and unhelpful and it is a nag. But if you write someone off Mm -hmm. as just being a nag and it's a person you're in a relationship with, then you, you might need to step back and check your own communication skills and what you're doing or not doing that might be contributing to it. But when we look at that very female gendered nag it has really scary implications, as noted by Jane Mockton Smith in her book, Murder, Gender and the Media, which is just a perfect page turner for the holiday season, <laughs> as it is right now when we're recording this podcast. Um, she cites research of Susan Lees, who looked at a sample of cases in which, quote, female provocation in the form of nagging was used as a rationalization for homicide. In court, because essentially it was the whole thing of like, well, the the husband killed his wife because she was such a nag. She never she she provoked him by nagging. Yeah, it's seen as a particularly female deviant behavior that can drive men in these cases in the court opinions to try to correct women. And there was one case, one example she gave where the judge was essentially saying like, Listen, I know that your wife was clearly an unpleasant person. She was clearly a nag, as you said, but also you're still going to jail because you killed her. Uh, but the fact that it's even like it holds water at all is so terrifying because everybody complains. Everybody complains. Um, we all have communication difficulties sometimes and misunderstandings. Not me. I mean, definitely not me. Definitely ever. not Kristen. <laughs> but like, especially if we're feeling powerless or helpless in a situation, uh, so that leads us to communicate indirectly. The fact that that coming from women is so dismissed as nagging and used as an excuse of like, well, of course you should be annoyed. You could kill her. That's fine. Just kill her. Kill the nag. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's horrifying. Well, and I mean, and I do wonder how often that comes up just in domestic abuse cases, especially, I mean, that word in particular, I bet if you start going through case files, it comes up over and over and yeah, over again. Well, it's such a chilling, the word is so chilling and it's such a hurdle to appropriate communication and healthy relationships. Because like we were saying, if you're just dismissing someone as a nag, if you are nagging or if you're dismissing someone as a nag, then both of you need to examine the way that you communicate and what you're trying to accomplish. And a more productive way to communicate would be a little something called carefrontation. Love it. Yes, that is a play on confrontation. And this is something uh, Lisa Belkin was writing all about in one of Caroline's faves, O Magazine. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she was citing research from psychologist Harold Straitner, basically saying instead of 
indirectly communicating your annoyance or your problem or your question to someone, uh, try employing empathy. Try being like, hey, I know that this XYZ thing is very hard for you, and I really feel like we could reach some common ground. Let's work together. Uh, for instance, my mother for years has complained to my father about the state of the basement at the house because my dad is a hoarder, true story, and the basement is crazy. It's totally insane. And so for years, my mother has been sort of berating him about it. And finally, she broke through to him by employing a different tactic because she finally said, hey, it's kind of crazy down there. And I know that you probably go down there and don't even like to spend time down there because it's so overwhelming. And I'm sure the idea of even starting to clean seems overwhelming because where would you even start? And so I just want to let you know, I'm here. Like whenever you want to tackle this, like let's do it together. And I'd like to say that they rode off into the clean basement sunset, but they did not. Um, but that's the whole idea behind carefrontation, that you're removing the shaming and blaming from your complaint and employing empathy instead. And I guess regardless of the side of the nagging equation you might be on, awareness is important. Paying attention to what's coming out of your mouth and how people react to you. <laughs> Pro tip, if you're someone like me who is a granular complainer as then needs to get down to the granular details and you notice the person you're talking to's eyes start to glaze over on like minute 45. You might be over the line. Yeah. You might be going into unnecessary <laughs> detail. Th- that kind of awareness can be really helpful. I've and, been there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Been there in front of me. <laughs> minute 45. <laughs> eyes glazing. No, I've definitely been, been in that, that chair of like, I just have to analyze everything about why this is the worst. And the thing is, if you get together with someone, like if you and I are complaining about something, a situation that we're in together, or like when I was with living with dude roommate and we were working together at the same time at my old company and we would be complaining about a coworker or a policy or like the day that was so bad, like there's no breaks on the situation because you're both in it and you're both just, it's so satisfying to root out every granular detail of how annoying that person was or that event was. Um, but if you are literally just telling a friend who's outside of the situation, I was yelled at and I appreciated it. My friend Miranda, um, this was years ago when I worked at the newspaper and we would go out and we would complain about working at the newspaper after work. And finally, Miranda looked at all of us, but specifically me and was like, enough, enough, enough. You're either going to quit your job or you're going to figure out how to like deal with it. But I cannot listen to this anymore. So anywho, that was appreciated. Uh, and I think what uh, if in in her yelling with some love uh, and I think what she would have said also would be that we should be mindful and intentional. We talked about this with those confident complainers earlier. It's really about recognizing that it's up to you to control your own behavior and your own perception of events and the world around you. You can choose to engage in activities that make you feel good, that are rewarding. You can choose to say, hey, I get to pick my kids up from carpool today, not I have to pick my kids up from carpool. 
I hate that I have to get my children back. Or in mine and Caroline's cases, we'd be like, why are we picking up kids from carpool? (laughs) We don't have children. What is happening? We get to pick up children. This is weird. I'm not complaining. I'm just scared. (laughs) (laughs) But if you're on the receiving end of complaints, if you are Miranda, if Mm -hmm. you're the Miranda of the group, to put it in sex in the city terms, or if it is your partner who's complaining, my my fiance is just endlessly patient with my granular complaining, there are things that you can do that can help direct more productive complaints, such as expressing sympathy and also pointing out patterns. I, as a complainer, yes, have found it very helpful when the complainee has been able to say, hey, you know what? You were talking about this X time ago, or you've been saying this. I've heard you say this, not in a judgmental way, but just say, this sounds very familiar. I've yeah. heard you say this many times because I think when we're complaining, when we get so caught up in it, we don't even realize, oh, we're talking about the same thing over and over and over again, which is a massive red flag that we need to make some changes. Yeah, there was a Wall Street Journal article that even talked about how there are therapists who now employ this tactic of basically telling you to get over it, which can be horrifying if it's like an actual deep-rooted problem that you need to fix. But it's not so much like, hey, let's not talk about the abuse you suffered as a child. Stop being ridiculous. It's more like when you literally can't stop talking about the same thing and you talk about the same thing over and over and over again, that more and more people are going to therapy requesting this sort of tough love approach of your therapist being like, you have literally talked about going to the grocery store every single time you've come to see me. Enough about it. All right. The saber tooth tiger does not exist. And that reading about that kind of therapy. Oh, it made me so nervous. I couldn't imagine that. I get I, I, I don't know. I, it's not for me. No, I don't think it's for me either. I think what is for me is what you were saying in terms of helpfully pointing out, like, I've heard you talk about this one thing a lot. And so, like, what's really going on? What's behind that? Well, and accountability is important because while not being allowed to complain whatsoever does sound very harsh to my ears, accountability is crucial because it's like, okay, if you're coming to me complaining about the exact same thing over and over and over again, what are you going to do about that? Yeah. And you need to be able, especially if you are the complainer, you need to be able to accept that accountability. Yeah. And I mean, once you do, it it does instill a sense of control. Finally, you feel less powerless when you finally sit down and say, okay, I'm going to tackle this. I'm going to handle this. Um, because so much of, of that chronic complaining, like we talked about, comes from that sense of powerlessness. I literally don't know what to do except complain about it. And maybe if your friend is complaining too, you can help them think of alternatives. Like, have you thought about keeping a journal and writing this stuff down? Have you thought about maybe going for a run every day to help alleviate that stress? And also, like my friend's husband did, set a time limit. Be like, hey, I hear that you're going down this road and I hate it for you and it sounds so awful what you're going through, but like you get, you get 15 minutes. Which also sounds really productive. I mean, I would take 15 minutes or a glass of wine. Hello. Just like free complaint zone. I'm, I might have to pass that along to my fiance. <laughs> yeah. Set the timer. Set your little kitchen timer. Pour the glass. Yeah. But you can also give positive reinforcement and help redirect the conversation as the friend. You know, encourage your friend to tell me, tell me what it is you love about your mother or about your job or about, I was going to say traffic, but 
Well, you could even say, well, hey, I get to listen to podcasts. I was about to say the same thing. That's a positive thing about traffic. Yeah. When I, uh, over the holidays, all the driving that I have to do back and forth to my parents' house, mm-hmm. I catch up on my pods. Yeah. Or should I say my casts? I don't know what the kids <laughs> call it these days. We make them. We should know, but I we know. don't. We don't. We really don't. Help us, listeners. Yeah. But seriously, being mindful like this is so hard. Caroline and I know this well. It is a daily and sometimes minute by minute practice. So listeners, we're really curious to hear your insights, tips and experiences on this. What do you do to manage your complaining or what do you do to manage your partner or friends complaining? MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is where you can send your emails. And we've got a couple of those to share with you right now. So I have a letter here from C, and I'm I'm assuming C might just want to remain C, because she's writing about our Crisco episode. C writes, and, and by the way, this C is neither... C nor C of Kristen and Caroline. (laughs) Different C, writing about lube, it's fine. Different C writes, I'm still listening to the latest podcast about lube, but had to jump right on my email with a story I thought you'd find funny. I'm American, but live in Northern Europe. And a couple of years ago, an American friend and I were trying to make old-fashioned, homemade American biscuits from her grandmother's recipe. It's often difficult to find products we know well here, like Libby's pumpkin pie, graham crackers, or chocolate chips. These biscuits called for Crisco, which is so impossible to find here. My friend had her family send her a care package full of Crisco sticks. A few months ago, I happened to be searching for some eco-friendly lube on an adult website locally and was absolutely shocked to find those big tubs of Crisco advertised as lube. Checking a few other local places confirmed Crisco is available, but only in sex shops. In Northern Europe, and they don't even change the packaging. It's the blue can with the picture of pie on it. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. Just thought it was funny that you mentioned this. It was a huge culture shock to me, and I thought you might like to note the practice is apparently alive and well here in Northern Europe. Keep up the great work. You make us all more informed and entertained about our world. Oh, my goodness. Different C. This is just a fantastic story. Thank you so much for sharing. Well, I have a letter here from Samantha about our hashtag blessed episode, which she said was really on point. Uh, so Samantha writes, I've seen a lot of my Facebook friends posting about how hashtag blessed they are to have great office views of Manhattan or the first red cup Starbucks of the season or whatever. But I'm emailing because I want to tell you about a more bizarre humble brag I've encountered on the Internet. After the birth of my daughter, I spent way too much time on the baby center birth boards. If you don't know, the birth boards are for people who are having or have had babies in the same month or year. Once our babies were all born, the boards started to fill with posts about how these new moms haven't brushed their hair, had a shower in days, or slept more than an hour, but were loving every minute of it. It was very strange to me, like a which mom can sacrifice herself the most and therefore be the best mother competition. Very few people bragged or even just talked about doing laundry or dishes or, God forbid, leaving the baby for more than five minutes to do just about anything other than stare at the baby. I'm sure there is a class component to this. I don't think many single moms or working class moms feel very hashtag blessed if they have to go back to work only a few weeks after postpartum or struggling on one income. 
Most people don't have the resources to be able to take the time to just lie around and breastfeed all day. It all reminds me of something I read, I think in Jessica Valenti's Why Have Kids, about how motivated and intelligent women who leave or are forced out of the workforce when they have kids throw themselves entirely into motherhood. I guess if you can't humble brag about your promotion, you can do it about your dedication to wearing spit-up covered sweats. Anyway, she says, keep up the good work. I love having a weekly dose of feminism during my commute. Well, thank you, Samantha. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Complaints and all. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including our sources, so that you can learn more about complaining, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.